Welcome to the SDG Talks podcast, where we discuss all things around the sustainable development goals and the roadmap to 2030. We are your co-hosts, James and Kevin, here to take you along the SDG ride. We hope you enjoy today's SDG Talks podcast. Jacques Cousteau once said people will protect what they love, but they cannot love what they do not understand. And so, you know, this value also comes from this understanding of what is there. So I think, you know, that's the first kind of step. And, and, and why does it matter to you? Well, this podcast is being sponsored by the ocean. That's because every second breath of air that we're breathing right now comes from the ocean. When there is no ocean, there is no blue, there is no green, as Dr. Sylvia Earle says. SDG Talkers, welcome back. Today, we're going to hear from Jeremy McCain, who is an artist with a passion for the environment. Jeremy's focus has been directed on ocean issues for several years, and he's an active Explorers Club member and the CEO of OCN.ai, which is an autonomous network of marine robots that automate enforcement at the sea. Today, you're going to hear Jeremy talk about his work with non-fungible tokens, NFTs, and how this is funding the removal of munitions from the ocean. Then we're going to get into some of the misconceptions around overfishing and what we can do as a society to address the problem from multiple angles. Jeremy is a wealth of knowledge, and I know you're all going to enjoy this. Take care, buckle up, and keep on SDG talking. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the SDG Talks podcast. I am so lucky and grateful and excited to have Jeremy McCain on the podcast today. Jeremy, how are you doing? I'm doing good, man. Thanks for having me on your show. It is a pleasure. So, for those of us that don't really know Jeremy McCain, I mean, I was fortunate to stumble upon you in the, the wonderful world of audio and clubhouse and immediately was, was gravitated towards what your vision, your impact and your statements. Give us a quick little 30,000 foot overview of who is Jeremy and a little bit of background of where you got to or how you got to where you are today. Yeah, sure. So, you know, my background was in, in technology. I started at a very young age working at uh, an internet provider. I was lucky enough to have a teacher that, uh, you know, vouched for me. And that's really where, where it all started. I've always been interested in computers. I've always been interested in programming. And, you know, I found myself kind of diving headfirst into kind of the, the internet era during that time. You know, and fast forward today, you know, I had my, my foray into like owning my own company and then selling it and then moving off to this next phase of my life which was was art i felt like having something that uh you can use to to share with others is really important it's a really about kind of you know especially a brief moment in time and that's really what led me to photography so i, I did that for a number of years i still continue to do it and you know where i really found an interest you know i think every artist finds like the thing that that really speaks to them most on on a subject matter mine just happens to be the ocean i mean it's just primarily because there's so much that we don't know about the oceans you know we know more than space than we do our own oceans we you know we've we've discovered less than five percent of the deep ocean so there's a number of really interesting things there so I, yeah I, after being an artist for a little bit kind of jumped back into tech with the ocean currency network and really to kind of not only tell the story of why we need to protect the oceans, but then create some tangible aspects of what we can do to protect more of it. That's, that's amazing, Jeremy. And, and I, your last statement of not only identifying the why, but giving some tangible actions to actually how. So within that point, so what is the OCN network? And 
sort of what is it, where is it today? And then what are you working on? What active projects are we working on now? Yeah, no, great question. So yeah, the Ocean Currency Network is a concept that, you know, I derived with a good friend of mine, Cody Marks Bailey, a couple years ago, um, kind of in the middle of the crypto launch, uh, where things really started to kind of get interesting with you know, ICOs and whatnot. And I kind of saw the same thing happening in that space that I saw in the, in the early 90s with uh, the dot-com boom. And I felt like, you know, the things that I learned in that time could be really applied here. And, and that quite simply was provide something of value. Don't just sell the paper napkin, which, you know, I think that there, there is a merit in writing down your ideas on a, on a, on a napkin and shaking someone's hand. And next thing off, off to the races you go. But with most things, uh, when you get into the field or when you get into the weeds, I guess I should say of doing the, the very thing that you've designed, you know, you said that you want to do 50% of it sometimes breaks down or perhaps even more. Maybe I'm being, maybe I'm being, uh, nice by saying 50%, but when you have something tangible, right. And you have kind of a business model, then all of a sudden things make a lot more sense. And I didn't see that a whole lot happening kind of in that 2016, 2017 crypto era. I saw, you know, the same thing happening kind of in the, the mid nineties to late nineties and the companies that are still around from those mid nineties, to late nineties are the ones that had the business model that had the, the team in place. And it was a solid foundation from day one. So day one, we kind of set out to kind of do that. We wanted to be able to say, okay, first of all, what are we doing? What problem are we solving? Right? Because there's so many of these startups that have a solution that they're always looking for a problem. So we realized that people kept saying some similar things. We're like, you know, we really wish that we had a, a network where we could share oceanic data and we could work together and, you know, attribute each other's data and far as ownership and intellectual property. And then there was this concept of, you know, having, you know, these tokens or these, you know, this, this form of currency to be able to trade. But a lot of times what was really that derived the value of that, of that currency was just other currencies that were injected in there. It just didn't really make a lot of sense to me. And I'm, I'm no economist, but I like to know that, you know, whatever I'm trading has some kind of inherent value. One of the things we thought of that we should try is that what if we could somehow make the, you know, the, the, the healthy ecosystem, something of value, something of value where we could all trade. And so in just a very simple term, I just thought, well, what if I could count fish? If I could count fish and say, you know, all of this fish here is worth $10 million. Well, what if we had 10 million coins and it never exceeded that number of coins? And that means every coin would be worth a dollar. But if we left everything alone and allow the ecosystem to rebound on its own, maybe we wouldn't have $10 million worth of fish. We'd have $100 million worth of fish or whatever, right? Then our value, our buying power would change based on the health of the ecosystem. So it was really about kind of changing the narrative of what is value? What is, you know, where do we derive value? We obviously know that a healthy environment and ecosystem is good for us, but what does that mean from an economic standpoint? And so that's kind of where that project really kind of began from in its, in its early days. I appreciate the context of where do we derive value because a lot of times it's we know it's valuable, we don't know how much. And, and the, the whole concept of crypto and even the realm of NFTs, which we'll get into, is how to kind of make some sort of a connection between the physical world and the digital world while then turning into something that can be traded and then based on what's it actually worth. I mean, it's sort of what you tell me that the market decides it's not, we're not backed or it's not tied to the U S dollar or tied to the gold standard. It's, it's a sort of a a new realm of 
opportunity. But what I would like to hear from you is this sort of, I guess mentioned it, but that connection between the digital and the physical world and how you're using some sort of digital encryption to actually determine if fish in a sanctuary are actually being protected or not. And, and then, then how does that apply to me as a guy in Chicago that might be interested in getting involved? Yeah, the, all these are great questions. I mean, I think, I think fundamentally speaking, it's like, you know, we don't know what we don't know. And if I were to go back and look at my life's work, whether it was in technology, whether it was in art or the installation work that I've done, it's really about making the unseen scene. And, you know, let's face it, when we go throughout our life in these landlocked places, I live in Dallas, Texas. You live in Chicago. Chicago is not so landlocked. But for most part, most of us exist not next to the ocean. And in many cases, even in some cultures, even if we are next to the oceans, we never go in the oceans. We never dive the oceans or really see what's beneath. And so, you know, deriving value kind of comes from a number, num- number of different places. I think Philippe Cousteau, I'm sorry, not Philippe Cousteau, his grand grandfather, Jacques Cousteau, once said people will protect what they love, but they cannot love what they do not understand. And so, you know, this value also comes from this understanding of what is there. So I think, you know, that's the first kind of step. And, and, and why does it matter to you? Well, this podcast is being sponsored by the ocean. That's because every second breath of air that we're breathing right now comes from the ocean. When there is no ocean, there is no blue, there is no green, as Dr. Sylvia Earle says. It's important to realize that. And it also is important to realize that over 1 billion people on the planet depend on the ocean as for for food security so our actions everything's all just intrinsically connected so one of the ways that we thought okay well there was a mandate several years ago that's now part of sdg 14 which is the sustainable development goals number 14 life below water and the idea was is that if we could protect 30 percent of the world's ocean it would give it a chance to start to rebound Uh, And then Sylvia Earle often says that 30% is a good start, but we need to keep going. And she's right. We can't get to 30% and say, okay, we're done. But what does it mean to protect? And I find it very interesting the way that the ancient protectors of the ocean, as I would call them, those that are in French Polynesia, as well as, you know, say, uh, you know, Fiji is a really good example. In fact, that's where I got kind of my my first uh, understanding of something that they call tambu. And tambu is a is a forbidden area. You don't go in there. And it could be for a number of reasons that they create a tambu. But in this particular case, I asked Rukasau, who is the paramount chief of the Lao group, he says, sometimes we go, we fish, and there's not anything, or it takes us too long. And when we do get something, it's, you know, of little consequence. So what they do is they say, okay, this area is protected. We can't go in here. No fishing, nothing. And they count the fish. They continue to count the fish for months, maybe even years. When it gets to a point where it becomes so abundant, they release that tambu and they go fishing again. And so there's always this balance in play. And this is something that's been happening for thousands of years. So I'm not anti-fishing. I am anti-fishing industry. I feel like what we've done to our planet in the oceans, we've taken out so much with zero regard for regeneration. And I think the key to the future is not about sustainability. The key to the future is about our attention to regeneration. And just like some of the the ancient leaders were for so long. So I think it matters to you in Chicago because, you know, you want to eat food. You want to have oxygen that you can breathe. If it wasn't for cocolithophores and prochlorococcus, you would not be breathing right now. 
And so those are those basic things that we all know. But what does that mean financially? Because let's face it, the ones who are making the decisions at the end of the day, they're concerned with how much revenue they can produce for their country, how many jobs can they create. And I can talk to you prochlorococcus until you're blue in the face. And in some cases, hopefully you might be blue in the face uh, because there is lack of oxygen, but then that will not motivate. That will not be enough to motivate you. So we have to think about what that financial figure is. And so if we look at this concept of saying, okay, well, let's protect an area of water. It's worth X now, but instead of extracting bodies out of the ocean for value, what if we cross collateralize it off of future values and always use it as a, as a way to kind of borrow against that is a, the immediate way that I see that we could, you know, have a new asset class to reinvigorate other things. I honestly think that today we have fishermen of fish, right? But I think in the future, because we know so little about the ocean, we'll have fishermen of data because I think we're going to see a lot of intellectual property, a lot of different ideas come out of really truly understanding our natural environment and trying to synthesize it in a way that makes sense for us here. I mean, a good example is the cone snail venom. Uh, Fabian Cousteau always uses this example, but I think it's great because cone snail venom itself can be used to treat, uh, you know, patients that have pain management issues and it has no side effects like other types of drugs. So I think, you know, there are some things that we can learn. And the question is, you know, we look at COVID-19, we look at other uh, diseases that, that plague us. The key could be in the oceans, uh, but we need to not destroy it before we can discover. That's great context. And into what you talked about there at the end, there's, we've been talking a lot about biomimicry and nature-based solutions. And then some of the best innovations from all mankind come from studying and copying nature, whether it's Velcro or flying a plane. But I'd love to, I think we, we could spend the, the whole conversation on that point. But one thing actually you mentioned too that I took a note on was we're actually looking and starting to adopt sponsorship for this podcast, but more with good brands. So the first sponsor we'll make it happen will be the ocean. Thank you, ocean for, for this, <laughs> for the press go. I'm taking right now. But I wanted, I wanted to hit on the, the regeneration part. We also talk a lot about donut economics in this podcast and some of the work that I do where it's all about where we need enough resources to survive. But once we start consuming too much, then all of a sudden you, you see the degeneration of the oceans and the environment and the climate and all those different aspects. But Within regeneration, I'm a big believer that if you kind of just let nature do its thing, it'll come back. It's pretty simple. Granted, there are some things that have gone too far, and we really need to take a, take a, some initiatives to try and rectify it. But do you have any examples that you've seen from your firsthand where you've provided, you've helped ensure some sanctuary, you've helped ensure some safe places, and you've seen a rebound of a fish population or a coral reef or, or something, or any, any example of regeneration happening that, that you can give us some sort of example? Yeah. I, I don't know if I'd go so far as saying, you know, I, I'm the one that did something, but I think, you know, there, there are examples of what happens when humans intervene uh, for the right cause. You know, a lot of times we hear about the doom and gloom, about all these horrible things that are happening to the planet. I think when I was growing up, one of the biggest threats was the hole in the ozone, ozone layer. And we had to stop using CFCs, which stand for chlorofluorocarbons. And we did. And you know what the amazing thing about that is, is that enough of us did the right thing that there is no problem with the, with the ozone layer like there once was, right? There is no, you know, we said, well, we fixed that problem. Let's move on to the next. 
it, it seems to me that if we could do something like that at that scale, could we not just keep on going down the task list? So I think that's one thing that's very interesting. I think another example would be what President Tommy Rumikasau did in his country, Palau. They created a national marine sanctuary that was 80% of their territorial waters. It is probably the best example of what happens when you protect your waters and let people not fish your waters. The biodiversity is off the charts. Uh, it's, it is a... Uh, it is really a, a national treasure, so much so that they actually created something called the Palau Pledge. And so as a visitor, you actually have a stamp that's stamped into your passport. It's a contract, and you promise basically to not take anything that's not given to you and that you promise to treat this uh, uh, with respect, and uh, you sign it in front of a customs agent, and you do not enter the country until you sign that. So I think when we realize that, that these things have inherent value to us, we're more likely to want to protect them. And a lot of that has to do with education. And you mentioned earlier, we don't know, we don't know. So how do we make the unseen scene? I think that the work you're doing now with using art to educate people in a way and then allow people to take action by purchasing or, or do, taking some sort of ownership is a really fascinating 2021 way to, to move the needle here. So give me some context on sort of this whole range and the rise of the, the NFT in the art world. I mean, many people are still figuring out what are NFTs. Uh, one of my favorite entrepreneurs, Gary Vaynerchuk, is making a big splash this Wednesday with an NFT he's dropping in, in you know, the NBA with the top shot realm of NFTs. So maybe to free, for those of us that know, I would love to know a quick little, in your words, simplistically, what is an NFT? And then how are you starting to use NFTs to fight for, to fight for the ocean? Yeah, sure. So what is an NFT? Very simply, think of it as a deed, right? Like a deed to your house. That document, it can't be divided. If you cut it in half in a divorce proceeding, you give one to your wife and you take the other, it's not going to work. And you've destroyed it. it was, there's some things in life that we just need to have one of, right? And you know, up until 2017 or so, in the crypto world, we had these things called ERC20 tokens and you could, you know, it's like like a dollar. I can say, "Hey, Kevin, I got a dollar. Can you give me change and you're going to give me four quarters back. So I could divide the idea of that dollar. With NFTs, it's uh, like I said, it's a deed. And so the idea was that sometimes we have things that we need to have scarcity. You know, how do you have digital scarcity? How do I give you the right, Kevin, to be able to sell this thing that I sold you? when one could argue that you've copied it a hundred different times, right? So the NFT basically shows this. It's a, it's a token, just like a regular token, but it shows its whole history of who has had it, when it has been transferred. I mean, almost exactly like you would look at, you know, a, a title deed on a real estate transaction. Why this is interesting is because for a couple reasons. One, it gives us the idea that we can actually have something that's rare on the internet. It gives us the capability that we can exchange it for some good, right? It could be crypto, it could be whatever, right? And then the other aspect of this is that it's a form of record keeping. So Kevin, if I sold you an NFT and then you decided at some point in the future that you wanted to sell it to your friend Gary Vee, in that contract, that smart contract, which is an auto-enforcing contract, right? That is actually agreed to by everyone. Uh, it's witnessed by hundreds of thousands of machines on the network. And part of that deal, as I said, I want 20% of every sale that happens on the secondary market. 
So by simply buying and holding it, you've already agreed to those terms of that contract. And when you sell that to Gary Vee, I get the 20%. It's great. It's really great. That's probably the most exciting part about this from an artistic standpoint is because in the United States where I live, I don't have any protections on the secondary market. If somebody told me that one of my pieces sold for $5 million at Christie's, I would be whoop de doo because I'm not going to see anything out of that. In some countries in, in Europe, this is a possibility. They have these, these royalties attached to it. But to me, in this particular context, this is why I think it's really interesting. And you asked, how am I going to use NFTs kind of in that the, the conservation realm with art? Well, one, I think it kind of goes back to that Jacques Cousteau quote that I mentioned. And that was really trying to get people to understand, you know, of, of something that exists so that they love it. And what better way to do that than art? This has been, this is nothing new. Artists have been doing this for thousands of years, perhaps, definitely hundreds. And when we have these things that we understand, then we're probably more likely to talk about them and to do things about them. I, a couple of years ago, I had an art installation called Lucid that was part of, it was paid for by the German ministry and the G7 presidential summit. And it traveled throughout Europe and it was about plastic pollution, but it was a really kind of like beautiful way to do it. It was neurofeedback controlled. So you controlled it with your brain using a Muse headset. And if you could be in the present moment, instead of seeing all this plastic trash, I would show you what was in the ocean that I had filmed that's worth protecting, whales and sharks and all these beautiful things. And what that led to was it led to a few people being active enough to want to put a ban on single-use plastics in the entire European Union by 2021, along with a bunch of other people who had been fighting for the same thing. So it really shows what this impact can, can do. But still, I feel like it missed the mark on, on many levels because we still have this funding issue. Like we, we can talk about these ideas all we want to, but really the number one thing that almost everyone comes back with after they're on board and they say, well, yeah, Jeremy, we need to protect the, our oceans. Well, how do we do it? Capacity building is something that is never discussed or rarely discussed on how to build capacity around doing some of these things to make an impact, to get to that regenerative cycles that we've talked about earlier. And so one of the things I wanted to do with this other issue with munitions is I wanted to create artwork around munitions, but I also wanted to create a tool with, the, with these NFTs that as they continue to sell, they continue to fund the removal of more munitions from our oceans. And I can go into detail on you know why munitions and all that kind of stuff, but, but that's the general premise of the NFT and, and, and how I wanted to use it for this particular cause. I love it. And yeah, I've been in the crypto space myself for a couple of years and have just started now buying a couple of NFTs to explore. And 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 then there, everyone can have their own opinion about it. I've talked to some of my friends and family and they're like, I don't get it. I can take a screenshot. And it's more of somewhat creating that fractionality, somewhat creating that sense of ownership and using as a conversation starter as we move towards this digital world of ownership. So thank you for that that broad picture of NFTs. But then towards the end there, you, you talked about the munitions. And when you first, when I first started researching you and hearing you talk about it, initially I did have to Google it. And I was like, oh, munitions, like, oh, ammunitions or weapons. And, and then I, I remember thinking, I was like, okay, well, wait, I, I remember thinking about like Southeast Asia during some of the some of the wars with every you know some of the, everything that happened in the 60s and 70s and how when there's a big flood there's some of these mines that, that come down and they're they're still there um there's still people who are dying to this day from mines that were laid back in that time but you now are, are 
or combating it from what what's lying at the bottom of the ocean. And I, I think for the most part, most people have probably never thought about this, but give me some context on what is the scope of this problem from the underwater munitions and why is it so important that we do everything we can to remove some of these underwater munitions that are sitting in our oceans? Yeah. So, you know, I, I'm like you, I, I didn't know about this either. You know, I think one of the things that the pandemic has really done for a lot of us is give us the capability to to really be massively connected to folks in ways that maybe we weren't before. And I had met Terrence Patrick Long from uh, the International Dialogue for Underwater Munitions and had conversations with him about this particular thing, as well as the United Nations Special Envoy to the Oceans, Peter Thompson. And what I learned was that since 1918, we've dumped 1.2 million tons of chemical and conventional weapons. And actually part of the conventional weapons, you know, I guess the treaty is that, you know, you can actually remove your cache of chemical weapons by dumping them in the ocean is actually a legal uh, course of action. So, you know, we think about that. So of course we don't want chemical weapons and we don't want people with access to chemical weapons. For that matter, we really don't want people to have access to bombs. So what do we do with them after a war? We end up with a surplus. So let's just dump them in the ocean. And at least that was the idea in the 1918. And it, it started to kind of slow up, you know, towards, towards modern times. But the problem is it's still there. So you might be thinking, like you mentioned landmines. Landmines are interesting because if you touch them, you blow up right? Obviously, if you touch uh, some of these conventional weapons, there's a risk of them detonating underwater. That, of course, is, is something that everybody is probably aware of. What they're not aware of is a study that was done by Dr. Jim Porter out of Atlanta, who did a study around a, a little place called Vieques, Puerto Rico. And there are tons of munitions in this area, mostly from target practice and whatnot. And they were just left in the ocean. But they did a study because there was just an enormous amount of cancer patients on this one particular island that doesn't have a, a hospital, so as far as I understand. and But there's no industry there. So where are all these people contracting cancer? Well, after a series of studies that were done, they actually found out that the chemicals that make up all of these, that, that makes up TNT that are in a lot of these uh, munitions are directly responsible for creating cancer in humans. So that means the food that, that you're eating means you're swimming in the water, you're drinking the water, you're gulping it down or whatever, right? It's touching your body. You're at risk on a number of different fronts. And, and the old idea was that, you know, dilution was the solution to this underwater pollution. It is not. And as you probably know, that the ocean is a very finite source of water, for that matter, in our solar system. So really the, the plan was, how do we go down there, neutralize them, pull them out of the ocean, and keep them from, from contaminating? Because over time, and we're talking about you know over 100 years in some cases, you've got these metal casings that are rusting, that are falling apart, and their contents are now leaking into the ocean. So every day of inaction that we do nothing about this, we are actively polluting the oceans. So, you know, the team at the International Dialogue for Underwater Munitions, led by Terrence Patrick Long, they're the best in the world. They have removed thousands of munitions out of the Baltic Sea. What's the problem? Funding. At a moment's notice, I could call Terrence and his crew and I can say, hey, we need to go to this place right now, go remove these bombs, and he's ready to go. He's dedicated to the cause. The next question is going to be, where do we get the money? So that's, that was the issue. And I thought, well, what if I, you know, one, people don't even know about this issue. How do I create artwork to get people passionate about this issue? And two, 
how do I use that to then get over to him so that he can actively do this? And I think with most of these kinds of projects, whether they're so big, like we think about plastic pollution and how massive that problem is. Sometimes we don't even know where to start. But with munitions in the ocean, it's a finite issue, right? We actually know, for the most part, where most of them are. There are a few anomalies here and there. But we know that we can go get them and we can we can remove them. So I we decided, you know, let's start with Molokini Maui, which is a crater just off of Maui. There are two bombs that are currently the, the U.S. Navy was going to detonate. They have since backed off detonating because they now know that by detonating them, they're only adding more TNT to the water column, which is even more destructive. So the state of Hawaii has passed uh, House Resolution Number 159, and it has passed through the Finance Committee as well. And that basically authorizes the Department of Land and Natural Resources to work with the initial dialogue for underwater munitions to remove these two bombs and beyond. So our plan now is just to say, well, let's let's raise the money that we need to do, uh, but at the same time, let's have fun. Let's create some let's create some artworks. And so what I did is I created a series called Null Void. And Null Void is a much longer term project than just these two bombs. It, we're trying to cover you know all of them as much as we can. But the idea was that if I could take data and then repurpose that data into a 3D environment and then create these, they look like little hairballs, you know. And what they are is they're particles that have kind of moved in, moved around through time and space, which basically those are the two major variables you have with the ocean. As, as these things are what they call point source emitters, they continue to put out this stuff. And so I thought, well, what if I made this these bands, these really beautiful color bands that exist underneath the water, and then bring them up to the surface where they look like explosions? Would you go scuba dive over there? Would you eat the fish that you catch over there? All of a sudden, it becomes very apparent that this stuff is everywhere. And by simply collecting these NFTs, you're making an active role in actually physically removing them. Jeremy, it's such a creative way to identify the problem, raise awareness, and more importantly now, allow people to take budget ownership on solving this problem. You mentioned the NFT exists, but for, for those that are now trying to get into it, if someone wanted to purchase this said NFT or get involved with trying to figure out how to, to, to get involved with this initiative, what, what would be the best place or how would they go about doing that? Well, the easiest way to do it is if you go to jeremymccain.com forward slash NFT, it lists all the current null void NFTs that are currently up there on Maker's Place right now. And a portion of those sales go to the International Dialogue for Underwater Munitions to remove these two bombs specifically in uh, Maui. I love it. Yeah, I'm, I'm on here now and there's a uh... They got rising, which is on here, and just a lot of really intricate art, cool art. Are you actually creating this, or do you have other creators working with you, or a combination, or how's that? How's that working? Yeah, so I created it myself, and uh, the music is actually basically scored by BT, who's a Grammy-nominated composer. He's actually the godfather of trance music. And we actually met through Clubhouse and he was like, man, he goes, I love the ocean. He goes, my wife and I, like we go diving with sharks. And he's like, we got to do something together. And I was like, what about an NFT? Like I've got this program called Ableton Live and I can't figure it out for the life of me. You seem like you'd be a pretty good guy to do that. <laughs> you know, little did I know this guy had a major in, uh, role in creating what we now call trans music. So it's just the work that he did in comparison to this is amazing. In fact, whenever he would give me a track back, I was like, well, crap, that's so good. I'm going to have to go make myself yeah. better. So it's at some point you got to just say stop. 
you know, like it's we let's release it because you know there's a bigger mission at hand. But but yeah, it, that project has been a lot of fun to work with, and we've got some others that are coming out as well that focus on on carbon drawdown. It's so exciting, uh, and we'll, we'll make sure to put that link in the profile and, and continue to get that word out. So I, I wanted I come back to a question earlier and not make this podcast going for too long. But one of the things that you did mention was some of the problems of fishing and overfishing and the system that's incre- that's been created. And of course, there's been a lot of hype in the news recently about Seaspiracy. And I know there's a lot of good about the documentary. There's a lot of controversial parts of the documentary. Fishing has been part of our culture forever and will continue to be. But and I think cast a very peculiar light on the industry as a whole, but it's a complicated conversation. It's not just, hey, all fishermen are bad. That's, that's not the case. Fishermen and women are part of our society and we need them. But from from the eyes and ears and your perspective of the overfishing issue, like what is the problem? And as opposed to directly pointing fingers and saying this fisherman or woman is a bad person, what do you see as being part of the solution. Now you'll probably get into the regeneration, but give me some context on problems, what's causing the problems of the overfishing and maybe some off the hip ideas you have for sustainable path forward with the fishing realm. Yeah, those are really great questions. And you know, it's a complex problem. As I mentioned, we're 1 billion people on the planet depend on the ocean for food security. Well, to be honest with you, so much is happening under the cover of night in the darkness. That you, you, all you know is that you go to the grocery store and you get uh, some fish and you come home and you cook it. You really don't have any kind of understanding of where that fish came from, who caught it, how did they catch it, what did they kill in the process to get that. So that there are a lot of problems, you know, and did they leave their nets behind, which is, you know, a, a huge problem. I mean, I've spent a lot of time out in the open sea and you see a considerable amount of plastic pollution. You know, you, you can't call it marine debris because marine debris happens naturally. Plastic pollution is what happens when humans leave their junk behind. And a lot of it is fishing, fishing nets and a lot of it is, is uh, nano and microplastic. But, but I think when it comes to the fishing industry as a whole, you know, why do we have this demand for say tuna? Tuna is delicious. Everyone loves it. But a lot of it is because of marketing. I didn't have a taste for tuna when I was younger, but you know, different places started popping up and they served, you know, ahi tuna, one of these very delicious, you know, sushi places. So, you know, slowly but surely there becomes a demand. I think it becomes dangerous when that demand is not curbed by what happens to the ocean when we eradicate life. Within the last 10 years, we've removed almost 97% of tuna fishing stocks. And yet we keep eating tuna like it's plentiful and it's still there. It should be declared an endangered species. There are refrigeration warehouses in Japan and other places that have tuna inside these places that can support the demand for the next 10 or so years. So it begs the question, are they hedging and are they hedging extinction? Is the last man to have the most amount of tuna, the one that's going to win. And I think that that's probably the case. I don't know for sure if it seems that way because it seems like a business deal, right? If it makes sense from a business perspective, then that must be what it is. So what do we do? Well, I think it's a little unrealistic to just tell the world, hey, uh, stop eating fish. That's not going to happen. 
as much as I would love for that to be the solution, it seems like Occam's razor, which is the simplest solution is often the best. You know, I, I tend not to kind of live in a fantasy world. You know, I think it's better to look at some of the other issues. Like most of these fisheries are subsidized by their governments and they're subsidized because, well, they don't make enough money to go out and fish. If those subsidies stopped, then those fishermen will look for something else to do. You know, maybe it goes back to what we were saying, that maybe we create some some tambus. Maybe we now start really understanding the ocean and repurposing a lot of these fishing vessels to to collect data, to be able to process data. I don't know. I don't claim to have the solutions, but I know what we're doing is wrong. And we have to stop this behavior because we will very soon get to a point where we're all scratching our head, asking ourselves, well, where did all the fish go? I mean, we just had some here. And I think by that time, obviously, it's too late. So I think the biggest thing right now, if I were to kind of really point at one thing, is to stop the subsidies. Yeah, it seems like in a lot of of markets throughout the world, there's some of these industries that are just hemorrhaging cash, but due to a subsidy, all of a sudden, they, they continue to stay afloat. And of course, job creation is important. But to the next question I have is, you mentioned this point of repurposing fishermen into maybe capturing data. It seems like a lot of the work you do, that you do is kind of like part Silicon Valley, part Indiana Jones. It's like leveraging technology while also getting your hands dirty in the field. Like, what does that mean to be on the boat and capturing data? How would we go about leveraging this new technology that you have with OCN and, and some of these different, whether it's a satellites in the sky to autonomous robots to different new sensors on the ground, how would we go about mobilizing existing fishermen and women labor force and, and turning them into data captures that then could, could also be a room for job employment? No, I think that's a great question. And I think a lot of it is the fact that, you know, if you have folks who are used to being at sea, well, then they're, they're seafaring individuals. They they know the right way around a boat. They know the, what their way around the environment, what will work, what will not work. You know, and I think there there becomes kind of a multi-tiered approach, kind of like a layer cake, right? There's There's the folks who would write the software for some of these buoys. There are people who would build the buoys. There are people who would maintain the buoys. There are people who would be rewarded for collecting different types of data. Then there's, now you end up with, at this level, you have raw data. And that raw data could be anything. It could be just a gigantic Excel spreadsheet that means nothing to anyone. But then there's another level, and perhaps this is where it starts to branch like like in a tree. And you have different people curating that same data set with different types of purposes so that we have a better understanding of our environment. And that's valuable to not just governments, private sector, but us as individuals, you know, and I mentioned earlier, we have this thing that we kind of joke around. For those of you that are in crypto, you understand there's a proof of work model in blockchain. There's a proof of stake. We have something that we kind of jokingly have created called proof of fish. So what that basically is, if our computer vision systems can count a certain subspecies of fish that we know that has inherent value, then instead of removing that fish, we could say, okay, the value of these coins or these loans that now basically asking for is derived by the market cap of where all these fish are. 
we have proof of fish so that we can go do other things and actually generate jobs and income for these countries. I think that's kind of where things become interesting because then now it makes sense because now you're holding a token or you're holding some kind of monetary value. It doesn't have to be anything that we've created. It could just be something that maybe each country creates that has this inherent value that changes over time due to the amount of data that we all collect. And the more data and the more verification that happens, you know, it's not it's not what I say. It's not what Kevin says. It's a whole blockchain of data collection systems that are verifying the same subsets of data that make sure that, you know, everyone's telling the truth. Because at the end of the day, blockchain, crypto, we hear all these things, right? What does it all mean? The reason why I love blockchain is because I want a network of truth and transparency. And that's what this provides me. Work of truth and transparency. I couldn't agree more. And I think that's one of the simplest ways to explain what is blockchain. And it's such an amazing conversation to hear how you're applying it for good. I think most people just hear these crypto traders, how to make a million bucks in, in one day type type dynamics, which of course, if you're into that, good for, good for whomever is listening is into that. But it's the value of the blockchain of creating this accountability and traceability. And now next level of aligning it with real world aspects like fish to ensure and encourage and incentivize sustainability and regeneration. And you're really leading the pack, leading the charge with within some of the sustainability realm of leveraging data. So thank you, Jeremy, for, for that. And I wanted to leave with kind of two final questions and you can feel free to answer in any order. But I'd love to know from your perspective right now within the context of Jeremy McCain and, and SCG 14 of what's something right now that that you're most excited about and that you're you're fired up about? And on the flip side, what's something that you're terrified about or keeps you up at night? And uh, you can answer me the order, but would love to know uh, the, the yin and the yang with what uh, what's going on in your brain right now. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm pretty stoked with this whole NFT thing because it's a really a neat way for us to do something positive and it's a way to include the public. You know, so many times we hear from scientists or other people saying, oh, there's been a coral bleaching event. Oh, we, we're going to do a film about it. Oh, isn't it awful? We should do this thing. And then everyone's left with like, well, what's the thing that I could do? Like, I want to know what I can do. And I think this can easily become an entry point to real success in in making an impact from an impact standpoint um, a little bit later i'm going to start introducing these uh, what we call bit mangroves where uh, each mangrove is hashed based on their genome and you collecting these directly affects the team responsible for planting and creating these mangrove environments and as most people know mangroves can sequester up to 10x more carbon than a tree can and so it's the one of the greatest ways to draw down carbon so so there's some really interesting things there what keeps me up at night people creating divisions you know you mentioned seaspiracy and you know while i think that the the great part of that film is that they focus on the fishing issue and how they're taking advantage of the planet and it should be stopped I think if that's what you take away from Seaspiracy, then that's great. But at the same time, the way they treated some of the nonprofits in there, they were, off, they were off the mark. And I think the danger is that if you don't do your research, it creates massive divisions. And in a time where we have probably less than nine years to really get our act together, the last thing we need is a bunch of high school drama. We really need to find ways to come together. And look, if people make mistakes, own up to them and say, you know what? 
this isn't 100 percent you're sitting at the 70 percent mark let's see how we can boost you up you know to that next 30 percent you know i put together this group called ultramarine with my dear friend Susie mai on sir richard branson's island called ultramarine and i did this because of this i'm just sick and tired of people and their egos playing in their own silos pretending like no one else exists i thought how cool would it be if we brought in politicians artists philanthropists business leaders investors scientists and said hey you know let's just all find ways to work together how do we how do we protect 30 percent by 2030 and for those that don't want to play well play nice maybe they'll get fomo and change their attitude and join us but i think the number one thing I think that we have right now that is a threat, we have technology that can solve these problems. We have the willpower, but what we don't have is we don't have these stop gaps, you know, for groups that are, that are, you know, maybe not unintentionally, but we can't create divisions this late in the game. There's just not any room for it. One great strategy if you're ever trying to get people to do something is to create FOMO. Whether it's uh, me growing up and experiencing myself or, or seeing in different aspects where you're creating scarcity or, or hosting an event or launching NFT, FOMO gets people to do things. So I couldn't agree more. And, and, and Jeremy, such a insightful and educational conversation. I will put your website into the, to the link and, and make sure that people can check out jeremymccain.com uh, as well. And just wanted to, on behalf of the ocean, the, the world and, and the whole SDG Talks community. Jeremy, I want to thank you for all your contributions and I really look forward to staying in touch and, and seeing what's next for you. Thanks, Kevin, man. I really appreciate you having me on your show. Yeah, right on. Take care. All right, man. Thanks for listening to the SDG Talks podcast. Make sure to check out all the show notes for relevant links from this show. Please share and follow SDG Talks on social media and stay tuned for updates from the Unleash in United Nations community. The goal of the SDG Talks is to bring you good content. So if you want to learn about something specific or have suggestions, please let us know. We look forward to seeing you next time on SDG Talks.